Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is The Lightning of Possible Storms, a collection of short fiction that reads like a novel. It includes stories about a mad scientist trying to steal his son's dreams, a story where a personification of capitalism is trying to impress his boss by winning a contest at work, a story about a Hollywood producer who just decides to adapt a bunch of explosions, uh, and many other stories, some funny, some terrifying, Salima Nawaz uh, says that it's cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. Suzette Mayer says it's beautifully written and expertly composed. And I say, uh, it's time you read this book. I've been working on it for almost 20 years, and I'm excited to share it with you. So please go to PossibleStorms.com. Again, that's PossibleStorms.com, and you'll find out a lot more about this book and some of the bonuses that you can get when you buy this book. Let's get on with the show. So I'm talking to Ryan Fitzpatrick, who has written a number of books, including Fake Math, where we find this poem, Join the Wrinkle Resistance. Um, and so I want to talk a couple about a couple of things with this poem, Ryan. So one thing I just like to teach people and show or, or, or to discuss around is the difference between sort of how maybe an author is looking at what they're doing. Uh, versus how maybe your reader is looking at what they're doing and how, you know, you can pull things out of a poem that maybe you know, the author planned to put there and also that perhaps they didn't plan to put there and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and I want to kind of just get a little bit into both kind of how we might read and understand or try to uh, interpret a poem like this. Uh, and also, you know, um, maybe where it's, perhaps foolish to try to do some of that, uh, but also get into maybe just kind of your writing process uh, and, and what are some of the things that somebody is thinking when they're writing a poem. Now, this isn't necessarily a poem representative of how you normally write poems, um, but I wouldn't mind you talking a little bit just to start with about how, when and how you wrote Join the Wrinkle Resistance and kind of how that process is typical or not typical for you. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, well, and, and typical is weird. Cause like, uh, mm. as, like I was telling you before we got on, like I, this poem is, is 16 years old, like 16 years old this month. Like, so I, um, so back in 2003, 2004, when I would have been working on this book, I like a lot of poets at that moment, uh, were heavily invested in the blogosphere if people can remember what the blogosphere is. That might be a new word for your students. Still seems like a new word to me, uh, but it's ancient in kind of internet time. So uh, I, what I was doing is I, I had a blog and uh, I was, every time I would finish a poem or a draft or part of a poem, I would just post it to the blog. So the first, when you asked me this afternoon, oh, hey, will you come and talk to me about this? Um, 
I immediately went and I, I asked myself, when, when exactly did I write this? So I pulled up, I've got archives of this blog in just Word documents. Uh, I did a really bad job archiving it. So I pulled it up and I found, like, I wrote the poem in September 2004. And I can see, like, what other poems, like, I wrote at the same time and whatever. But uh, I can guarantee, like I was telling you before, I can guarantee this poem, what would have happened is I would have had a title. I don't know why I came up with this title. Or I can't remember why I came up with this title. I imagine I was taken with the idea of, like, uh, things being wrinkle-resistant and the kind of, like, friction in that second word. Um, and so, like, um, likely the way I would have written this is I would have plugged this into Google, like, plugged the phrase, join the wrinkle resistance, which I probably would have come up with because it would have sounded clever to me or cute. Uh, and I would have started responding to things in the Google results. Let's just pause for a second. Like, let's yeah. just put a pin in that. And just talk briefly about why you would have been proposing in that way. So at the time, especially, as you say, uh, one of the very common things that, uh, you know, less conventional or more experimental writers were doing was uh, writing in this mode uh, that at the time was known as flarf. So this is an example that's not maybe a pure example, but it's kind of connected to this particular poetic movement, or at least influenced by a movement that was going on at the time. Let me let me split the hair a little bit. Sure. On that. Um, so, um, if we think about like 2004 as a year, like what are some things people were concerned with in 2004? So one was the internet was still pretty new. Uh, so the rise of internet and information technology. Um, social media wasn't really a thing, although there was like like Friendster and like uh, blogging was kind of social media, and there were forums and. So it's not like it didn't exist. It's just like Facebook. There were, the word social media hadn't been coined yet. Uh, the other is like kind of post 9-11 American imperialism. Um, um, the kind of stuff like the late 90s um, uh, tensions around like globalization and uh, consumerism in that, in that sense um, were, were, were big. So like all that kind of going into like what they called FLARF. So FLARF was trying to respond to the post 9-11 moment where poetry um, was kind of obsessed with being really earnest and sincere uh, and being used as a tool to kind of like um, process a national trauma. So there was an outpouring of poetry in that moment. And so there was this group of poets in the States and they started before 9-11, but it kind of became a thing right after 9-11 uh, where they were on a listserv, another kind of like early internet word for you. Uh, and they were trading poems back and forth. And the way they were writing the poems, or the way they ended up writing the poems, is they, is they started this thing called Google Sculpting. And um, I, I, don't, I can't remember who, maybe it was Gary Sullivan or something, but like, because I wasn't on the listserv. I'm not, I don't consider myself a flarf poet, but I was certainly influenced by them. Um, is they figured out if they started punching just like absurd things into Google, when Google was still developing, Google was not perfect at that point. You can't do this with Google now because Google's algorithm is too good at finding what you want. So if you punched absurd things into Google, you get like a weird like mix of like different search results, like things you wouldn't want if you were actually. So I remember um, 
this wasn't Flarf, but it was kind of at the same time. There was this like ga- internet game called Google Whack. Do you remember that? No. Uh, so Google Whack was like somebody had to put up a website with it too. Uh, maybe it still exists, but like where people would try to find um, two word pairings that would only give you a single result. So so and Flarf would work on the same principle. So maybe to write your poem, you would you'd try to pair a couple words that would that don't normally go together. So maybe you go like pepperoni unicorn um uh, popsicle uh genocide uh and you would pair these and then you would get this these weird search results and then you would try to like process through it and you would try to write these poems that were purposely bad now what i want to just point out though uh so you say they're purposely bad and and again this was in many respects the intention but but there's a sort of a, a comic um uh, procedure involved here where you're just almost trying to get something so bad as good right yeah and, and and taking that sort of ethos or that uh, aesthetic i guess I suppose you'd say into poetry and one of the things that i think is interesting about this uh, approach and why i was really interested in this type of writing at the time myself um was if you take you know pepperoni unicorn your example uh what's interesting about that bizarre example is this very it's a very good image like it's very unique it's very specific you can envision it you can draw a picture of it like all the things that would make a poet poetic image good uh are there it just is ridiculous and absurd like it has a certain insane surrealistic uh absurdity to it um uh and it's kind of comical uh as well but but if you just take the things so it's hard to be serious with it but if you yeah. take those things, if you take the tone away and try to be serious with it, <laughs> you get all <laughs> these interesting, weird results. And so it, as you were saying, this kind of process, so creative writers listening to this, maybe, um, it, as you were saying, it's, you, it's almost impossible to really do this with Google anymore because, yeah. uh, but, it, but it, for a time it was very, very uh, possible. And I think you can still manufacture this kind of thing Um well, you I just don't, can't really I, do I don't the think, same procedure. Like, I don't think, like, Google sculpting invented this, right? I think because, no. Because, like, I, I was trying to think this afternoon, like, after you asked me, what were the influences on, like, a poem like this for me? And one of the other ones, uh, other than Flarf, was thinking about, like, poets interested in, like, improvisational writing or procedural writing. Uh, like forms that allowed for a certain kind of negativity, and, and let me let me say when I use the word negativity, I don't mean like like sad or 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 bad or anything like that. By negativity, I mean like you're trying to get rid of like um, like um, knowing what what the outcome's going to be before you jump into something. So John Keats famously had the idea of negative capability. You're trying to write in a way that you you might not understand why you're writing. You just froze there, Ryan. So just, <laughs> I'm just going to see if I can prevent you from freezing. So sorry, can oh. you just repeat what you just said? Cause yeah. you froze on my end. Oh, sorry. Um, so like, so, so I was thinking about poets who like kind of indulged or like were pursuing this sense of negativity. Um, so I was thinking about like Fred Waugh, he has this great book, Music at the Heart of Thinking, where he likens it to like, it's right, improvisational writing, it's like jazz, or he calls it like drunken, drunken Tai Chi, um, or something like uh, William Carlos Williams' Cora in Hell, where he famously would um, come home from work, he was a physician, 
he would come home from work and at like 1130 or at night, whenever he would get home, he would like bash out and improvise like on his typewriter, like, um, like a small prose paragraph. And then he would accumulate them or like uh, Jax McLeod, who would just come up with these wild procedures to just generate text. And the text might not mean anything, but it was like the making of the procedure that was the important part. And it also becomes possible to pull meaning out of it, even if it doesn't intentionally mean yeah. something as well. But just to kind of, before we get back to kind of interpreting this poem or how we might look at it and read it, um, so just to jump back to your procedure. So you so you, you plug, join the rank resistance into, yeah. you know, Google. You, you come up with that phrase, you know, just with this set of wordplay on wrinkle resistant pants yeah. or whatnot, plug it into Google. Uh, you start, as you, as you say, at the time, what Google would give you is a bunch of disparate results that didn't really match yeah. each other, uh, but and we're using different kind of registers of language. Yeah. Uh, and then what were you And that was, you that was the important part, was the mix of registers or mix, to, mix of like social textures. Yeah. And then what? And how do you actually put that into a sculpt it as Google sculpt, you know, as uh, the word suggests? How do you, so, you actually kind of sculpt that into a poem? So uh, I would start with, or I, I would either start with, or I would like slowly drift into a kind of um, container. Like I'd have to have, so, I'd have to have a pre, almost a preset container for it. So that's why if you pick up a copy of Fake Math and look at, especially the shorter poems, they'll all often be like really regular. Like this one's in couplets. Like some of them will be in like tercets or quatrains. And that's literally just like to give myself like um, a limit. And to give it a bit of like, by containing it, you get you give it a bit of tension, like to what you can include. So you have to include as much good stuff as you can in that tiny container. Um, and so like the way I would write poems like this is I would like kind of improvise out these things and rather than rather than like edit them later, I would just write a ton of them and the ones that sucked, I would just throw away. So, um, so I think like, I probably wrote, um, I probably wrote twice as many, twice as much work as actually went in the book and cut like a ton of stuff, like as I went, uh, just to figure out what actually worked and what didn't, or what produced something interesting. Sure. And then you're, but, and then it, as even though you're doing these kind of experimental approaches, uh, yeah. you are also doing some very standard or conventional um, poetic techniques. As you say, you're using couplets, you know, these two yeah. line stanzas. Um, they're roughly, I mean, you're not really counting the meter or anything, but they're roughly the same length. Uh, yeah. You know, these I was couplets. using the, I, I was using, I still do this. I was using the ruler at the top of the page on Microsoft Word. Well, so you also, you also are using enjambment, like so. The line you've got easy care sheets combine hot checks with wheat. You like that wheat? Uh, that's an example of enjambment there, carrying yes. that over. And a really common technique that poets use for enjambment uh, is to have that kind of um, when you have that pause, you know, hot sex with, uh, and then the completion on the next line is an unexpected, you know, move. Yes. It's a joke structure uh, where we have sort of this, you know. Um, punch, uh, punchline in a manner of speaking, w w with the last word completing, you know, the first part in a surprising, the yeah. setup in a surprising manner. But it's also a, a just standard uh, technique that we see with enjambment. So, you know, so despite all the experimental approaching, you, you do have some very conventional sort of structuring here. 
Yeah. Why is that important though? Um, I think it anchor, like it's an anchor, right? Like it's an anchor. It's partly an anchor for me and an anchor for the reader. Uh, so like if I, if I went and did, and, and you can do this and I, I've read lots of work that's really exciting that kind of like, you, you like on every level, it's like doing something like wild or unexpected, but I think, uh, it can be really useful to, um, to kind of like use something using, use something normative as an anchor. So it gives me like, in terms of like, uh, it, it makes writing the poems, it made writing the poems quicker to like do it in couplets, for instance, or to limit the line size in a certain way, uh, which allowed me, which allowed me, like, I didn't have to think about everything. Um, like I could dance, like it's the difference between like, uh, like a pre-planned set of steps in a dance and the kind of improvisational moments, right? So you need to have the, like, you need to have one to get the other because they play off, play off each other. Uh, but I also think like the fact that this poem is in couplets maybe, um, makes it more approachable to a reader because it's recognizable in a certain way. Um, so it gives a reader a certain kind of anchor, right? What I like to uh, talk about when I teach this poem, generally yeah. speaking, is as I'll point out uh, that you have in many ways, again, a conventional container here. Uh, it's kind of conventional st structuring. Like, it, as you say, it looks kind of like a poem yeah. that we would normally encounter. It has a lot of the techniques we normally see. Um, but then when you actually read it, so like there's a moment, I think, before you read it where you might think you're looking at a normal poem. Yeah. Uh, and then you read it and it's baffling. Uh, and, and the reason it's baffling is for, a few, is for a few reasons. But I think one core reason is you really have this language of advertising here or this kind of hype uh, hype speak almost that we encounter and more normally we encounter this in advertising like the exclamation marks you know don't be a schmo free small molecules join the linen, linen revival you know join the linen revival is a, a could just pull you know or retire your iron like these these are the kinds of things that we could easily easily see in just an advertising billboard or you know and some of that might have literally just come out of a google search result and i just dropped yeah. it in it could have been like a new Google ad for, you know, I yeah. can't remember if they had Google ads at the time, but. I think um, they did. And they were more, they were more visible. I don't think well, I use the ads, but like, cause I usually would just use like the snippets on the search results. Well, how I like to point out, well, how I like to read this poem or teach this poem or analyze yeah. it is I'll, I'll say to people, um, what you're normally trained to do is when you encounter a poem, you're trained to look deeply into it and pull the meaning out of it. You know, yeah. try to, yeah, but this poem won't allow that because there is nothing beneath the surface of this language in a manner of speaking. Uh, it's, it's the kind of junk language that we see in advertising where everything is on the surface. Because if in advertising, you need everything on that surface to make yeah. sense. Uh, and in a sense, I think the point of the poem comes across in how in this disjuncture between how we're normally trained to read a poem and then here's a poem that refutes our normal attempts to read it. Instead, we're looking at this advertising language, this junk language. I like to call it junk language for the purpose of this, of this yeah. example. Uh, but it's now in a poem format. And in the poem format, it demands and insists on being read in this deep manner. And so you get this interesting way in which I think it, it, it starts to, like if you're 
paying attention and thinking about it, it starts to sort of insist that you uh, think about your encounters with language. You know, here's the language you would normally encounter in the normal world. Yes. Uh, but here we are in the poem where we don't normally encounter normal language. Um, instead, we encounter a heightened language that where everything means more. Uh, and yet here we have, you know, the language we're seeing here is refuting that, is making that sort of normal encounter with a poem difficult, even though it's kind of closer in many ways to how we normally encounter language in the normal world. So yeah. you get a sort of, I think it kind of cuts both ways. I think the poem in some ways suggests that our normal encounters with language are empty and senseless. Um, uh, and in a sense, you know, you could read the poem as being critical of the kind of normative way that we use and encounter language in the world where we're really communicating with one another only to sell each other things. Yeah. Um, but you also look at it in a different respect, whereas here's a poem that maybe is critiquing poetry for being out of touch with the language of the world. You know, the language we normally find in a poem lacks humor and surprise and these this value that the junk language we encounter on a billboard has uh, so often. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, poetry is supposed to be the highest form of language. And yet the language in poetry is almost always now so overused and overwrought. Uh, and in a weird way, it's trying to be very emotionally expressive. And yet it's kind of sapped of emotion. Yeah. Uh, because here is where we sell our emotions. Um, uh, in, in a, so I think that's an interesting poem that kind of on a, on a certain level means nothing. And on another level, sort of asking you to think about how uh, poems tend to operate in order to mean anything and how it's they use language in, in a sense that they use language uh emotional language to advertise emotions yeah and get you to buy them in a manner of speaking or at least buy the brand of me as you know a person who has deep feelings and, and thinks deep thoughts yeah uh, but then at the same time uh i think is can be seen as critical of that kind of junk how we've junkified um, the language in the world. Uh, there's all sorts of ways in which you can see it. You can see it both as celebrating this kind of advertising junk language or as, you know, uh, denigrating poetry for not using it. Um, or just, you know, uh, being kind of bound up in this whole capitalist exchange, you know, uh, yeah. here's the poem where we're supposed to be free of the whole, you know, capitalist exchange of since poems are worth nothing. And, and so on. And yet it's still in that whole structure is so, um, it's so wrapped up in it. It's an interesting poem to me because it kind of operates in all these meta levels, even as it kind of refuses to operate on like a, no, like a normal level in, in a certain sense. Uh, I don't know what you think about that interpretation, but. Yeah, sure. I told you I was going <laughs> to say whatever you say. Yeah, whatever. So it's fine. Uh, well, but but uh, are you even thinking about these things when you're writing, though? Uh, like, because these are the kinds of things I know that not, you've thought not about. Like in that kind of like I don't because I don't think oh man this poem's gonna like uh, create a dialectic between the way we understand the way language works in poetry and the way that language works in consumerism. Man, um, I like that's not, but that's in the background, right? Um, yeah. Like I was gonna say the 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 thing that maybe like if you, if any of your students are looking for an essay topic, I'd like to see this essay uh, on the way gender works in this poem as well. Cause I think like, cause reading this now I'm reading this like 16 years after writing it and I go, Oh yeah, there's a lot like going on with gender. Like the way, the way 
the 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 treatment and the maintenance of fabrics is totally like this uh, this form of uh, fa- like supposedly feminine labor, um, but also the weird like boner jokes in the margins of the poem. Um, and it, like there's this kind mm-hmm. of toxic masculinity at work. So like, um, but but again, like I wouldn't have written that thinking. Oh, I'm I'm taking down toxic masculinity, man. I would have thought, oh, here's a funny boner joke that I could put in this poem. Well, or even just you know, here's a, a move where I can surprise uh, a person going from one line to the next. Like yeah. I think when the well, sort or, of, or that I, I'm surprising myself as I write it. But it's not that you can't. Um, I, I think one thing that's really important to understand, both writer, but also just for the reader, uh, yeah. is that when it, when a writer is actually sitting down to write something. Um, a lot of their high fluent ideas about you know what they are trying to do in this piece of work are just going to get in their way, and it, and ironically won't help them produce anything that does anything. Like here's a poem that actually does a lot of these does work on these meta levels, um, but if you were to sit down and try to do that, uh, in a certain sense, like you could have it in the back of your head as like yeah. that's your project because that is in many ways like you have certain things that are like your you know project. Yeah. Like maybe you're doing in a book or you're just kind of doing in your life as a writer. Uh, you're always sort of returning to the same few things often as, as a writer, at least, you know, in, in certain periods. Um, but if you have them too front of mind, they start to paralyze you and, and you start to overthink and overanalyze and, and, yeah. and all the fun and the visceral quality of the work starts to bleed away from it a bit. You know, it, it's a weird sort of uh, approach. I think that you often have to take as a writer where you have to kind of be loose enough um, and kind of be improvising enough, as you say, that you're and playing where you're just trying to get an interesting effect or you're just trying to get some interesting wordplay going or you're just trying to have it kind of feel a certain way or yeah. um, or, or be fun in a certain respect. Um, and if you if you can do that, uh, if you can kind of like keep on the process level, I find, um, then it makes possible all these different levels for the reader. Yeah. But if you try to control them too much as a writer and manipulate the reader too much, I think there's almost a weird way in which the reader can feel it and they start to rebel and like think different things than you want them to think if you, if that, you know, or what yeah. have you. It just seems too um, uh, didactic. So, but I think a lesson for just a person who's maybe not a writer and um, even, you know, just more interested in reading or looking at uh, poetry or fiction or what have you is that there is this sort of distinct difference between like maybe what a writer is trying to do and what they're actually doing yeah uh, and sometimes it aligns and you've got like a, you see writers who have a real keen control of things um to a certain degree but uh so often i think it, it helps to like loosen your grip a bit and allow the thing to um develop its own like if it works as a poem in a manner of speaking, it'll be doing a lot of this thematic work, um, whether you intend to or not. Well, and you can like as as a as a writer, you can kind of sweep the text up in the edit too, right? So, mm-hmm. like you could your initial kind of like uh, approach at a piece or at like a chunk of a piece can be kind of loose and improvisational, but maybe you begin to see like the thematics or you see like uh, the larger formal concerns or the, 
or the kind of architecture of a text later after you've written the, all the individual pieces. And then you can go, oh, this piece doesn't fit. I'll just not include it. Or, oh, this piece could fit if I just do another edit and like write it, rewrite it with all this other stuff in mind. Like, so th there's like, that. that's the other thing, right? It's not like a poem gets written in a single stroke of genius. It's that it's often written in, in like stages. Even though I just said I wrote this poem in 15 minutes. Well, I mean, it can happen that you just turn it out. It, it happens, yeah. right? Especially if you're doing a bunch of things like that. You write 200 poems, then like, okay, yeah, a couple of them will get written in 15 minutes, yeah. front to back. Well, but, even if you wrote uh, 200 poems, in, even if you wrote 200 poems, 15 minutes each, mm -hmm. uh, and went back and like went, well, of these 200 poems, maybe 100 of them work. And that's the book. The rest can go in a file somewhere. And you can, somebody can dig them out of your archive after you're dead. I Say, find Aren't some... these crappy poems good? Maybe they are. If he's famous enough. Yeah. Um, uh, what I find so often in the editing process is it becomes a, a, a problem of seeing what the thing is. Yeah. Uh, in its essential nature. Like what is it at its core the most like? Yeah. It's oh, like, like a, like a, like a sculpting metaphor. Yeah. In a manner of reveal. Like, I, I feel like so much of editing in the editing process when it's going well is just figuring out like, how do I make this thing more like what it is? Yeah. Whether it's adding things or taking them away or changing them or, or just leaving well enough alone. Like, how do I get it closer to like what it is uh, rather than trying to make what I want it to be? Yeah. Um, or what, you know, I think it is uh, or, you know, thought it was initially or, or what have you. Um, so for you, you know, I'm now, I want to do a little bit of a thing where I ask students to think about a couple, ask a couple questions yeah. of this poem. So I'm going to ask you questions about your own poem that okay. I would normally ask students. So some of these you've kind of asked already, but, um, uh, here's a question for you, Ryan. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference between the language you encounter in poetry and the language you encounter in advertising? Um, social texture. Um, so like, I wouldn't have had this language when I wrote this poem, but like the, the further I get away from it, the more I think about what I did in this book and like, and in my other book and what I do in a lot of my work is I think about, I often work through collage and to work through collage, you have to think about like, what's the, what's the kind of visual texture of the thing I'm working with. Or if you're creating a quilt, you might work with fabrics that have different textures, right? So like when you're creating a, a poem through collage, you have to think about like, what are the textures I'm playing with? And, the, and, and I like to put that social in front of it because it reminds me that textures come from somewhere. Um, and what I mean by social texture uh, is when it, it sounds like this kind of like highfalutin theory term, but like it's as simple as like... Um, when you, when you read a book from one place or from one context, it's often going to have a different kind of vibe than a different book. Like if you read an instruction manual for your oven, that's going to have a different texture, like a, like a different vibe, a different texture than if you read like uh, Harry Potter. Oh, I shouldn't mention Harry Potter. It's like, cause fuck JK Rowling. Uh, <laughs> but um, when you read like a, a children's novel, right? Um, but um, so like, it's interesting to like mix social textures. So I think like when you ask, like, what's the difference between 
um, the language of advertising, the language of poetry. Part of me wants to say there isn't one, but part of me wants to say, well, they, they have a different like uh, expected social texture. So like the language of advertising really can be anything, but like, but like it'll often have qualities that will like, like try to convince you, like they're, they're rhetorically trying to convince you of something, right? Whereas poetry often works in this kind of romantic mode where it's like talking about feelings or has this kind of narrative pull or it might have like a metrical, um, like a metrical regularity to it. There's a kind of texture we, ex- we think we, that we think poetry should have. And uh, poetry often doesn't have that. Um, I feel like I haven't answered your question at all. No, I think that answers the question. But I think the other thing that kind of maybe clarifies the answer is, we, of course, we, we take one and move it into the other. Like if we yeah. take the advertising language and put it in the poem, now we can see the difference between yeah. the social texture. The language is the same. Yeah, uh, It's just been moved from one location to the next, and the expectation has changed. So yeah. you can see some of the ways we approach the language differently. So in advertising, of course, uh, for example, the language is not trying to draw attention to itself as language. Yeah. Uh, because that gets in the way of selling you something. But in poetry, yeah. of course, it's always trying to draw attention to itself as language because it's trying to sell itself. It's trying to sell the language to you. Um, yeah. And the skill with the language yeah. and so on. And so it, what it hides in poetry is the operation of salesmanship uh, as just displaying like the language to you. Whereas, you know, the reverse is the case in advertising. Um, uh, yeah. And so there's other questions. You answered most of the other questions I typically would ask a student to think about uh, already. But <laughs> like, like, you know, how, how do we interpret sorry for wrinkle your resistance? Video, no, no, it's perfect. But um, like, well, we'll talk about wrinkle resistance. So that's the sort of, you know, phrase that everything stems from. Um, but, but I asked a lot of people to just, you know, think of like, what would it even mean for there to be room? Uh, and of course, the the, the word there's operates. There's no wrinkles in your pants. Yeah, it operates right. on the level of uh, my computer's telling me my connection to you is unstable. <laughs> yeah, you've it's been great, wobbling. You've been wobbling. It's an unstable collection. Uh, so that's this nice, great uh, phrase, piece of Just language. Just like a palm, there. right? Yeah, but 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 the, of course, there's the resistance of like you know you don't have wrinkles now, but there's also like the idea that like we've joined the resistance, right? Yeah, like There's a, a revolutionary. Resistance. Yeah. And it's so often, of course, what advertising is trying to do is substitute the, uh, is to sell you the kind of emotional feeling of being part of a revolution or a movement or a cause. Uh, but really it's just, you know, so that it can milk you of money, <laughs> you know, in a cult like manner, uh, yeah. having pulled you, you emotionally into this sort of scenario. Yeah. And, like for, and for instance, uh, did you know that uh, Ben and Jerry's just started a new podcast? No. About the history of white supremacy in America? <laughs> that like, can't that's be real. it. That's it right that there. A joke? Right? That's not a joke. That's a real thing Amazing. that happened in 2020. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. That's uh, I really the rebel cell right there. there trying to name the ice cream flavor that goes with it. But I couldn't that's, think of one that didn't the, like personally offend me. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. But you know, it, that sort of breakdown between uh, where everything is advertising, even this yeah. you know, poem now, 
you know, where we normally would go to, again, feel as if we've escaped from the rat race or escaped from, you know, uh, like this is supposed to be our private time with our own thoughts. And yet it's been kind of colonized in a manner of speaking, um, you know, wh- whether we, you know, that, that there's sort of no escape in, in a certain sense, because even the poet is trying to sell us on, uh, you know, their epiphany about the world where, you know, uh, we just can't escape. It, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting poem, I think, for, and I like to teach it because it, um, it, it really does display how you can have no content in a poem uh, in a certain sense, and yet, you know, still have a lot of uh, poetic depth there in a, in a weird sort of way, and a lot it to think look, about. Like, I disagree with that. There's lots of content in this poem. Sure. There's just but no, not, like, we, we there's expect- just no single unifying message in this poem sure that's a better way to put it yeah there's a lot of content the lyric at the end is like against your junk's secret hiding pocket like what does that even (laughs) like 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 it's resisting closure and resisting unity but there's lots of content (laughs) well and just to bring it back to the title a bit in some ways i think it's kind of resisting um almost ironically, instead of resisting wrinkles, it's almost insisting on the wrinkles, you know, uh, and kind of, you know, it's as if the wrinkles themselves are the ones forming the resistance. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me, Ryan, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. And uh, yeah, have a good day. Yeah. When your camera's off, students. (laughs) 